Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and board review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind that these episodes are meant for medical review purposes only, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. Each week, we pick a different high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week, we're talking about retinal vein occlusions, and we will start with the lesser of the two, the branch retinal vein occlusions. Ben, uh, how do these come about? So, like the name implies, they are a blockage of blood flow through a retinal vein, and in this first case, will be a branch retinal vein. Usually, in fact, according to some studies, 99% of the time, some see like 92 to 100, there's a bit of a range, but usually it happens where an artery and a vein cross. The thought is that arteries are stiff and can become stiffer when people become vasculopaths, and that stiffness can squish a vein at the arteriovenous crossing because at that crossing they share an avitential sheath, so they're kind of bound together at that crossing. And that, um, that squishing of the vein can lead to the things we talk about in Virco's triad, including uh, stasis of blood flow and eventually damage to the endothelial lining of the vein and a vein occlusion. Uh, and, uh, oh, sorry. No, you, you go ahead. And notably, from what Ben's describing, it doesn't take a thrombus to actually occlude this vessel. On histology slides, it's really just the thick and intimate media and that endothelial damage that can provoke or precipitate this, like Ben's saying. Peculiarly, these are most often found in the superior temporal quadrant. It's thought that that's that's because there's more arteriovenous crossings as a superior temporal quadrant but about 66% of them are there. And then the second most is inferior temporal, and then it's very uncommon to have the nasal. Andrew, what are some risk factors for retinal vein occlusions? The usual ones that you'd imagine for a vasculopath, including if you're older than about 60 or so, age over 60 is a risk factor on its own. And then the others, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, um, increased uh, BMI, those are risk factors on their own. And because of these sort of more understood things, you don't normally need to do a systemic workup except to optimize those risk factors. However, if your patient is on the young side, certainly younger than 60, you should probably think about getting a hypercoagulant workup. Or if the lesion isn't, you don't find it at that crossing where the arteries and the veins cross. Trying to find that area of occlusion is difficult. Ben, can you describe to us how you generally might find a BRVO or diagnose one? Right. So first, what the patient might experience and why they may come to your clinic is they can have peripheral visual field defect where the um, retinal vein occlusion were to occur, or they can have central um, central visual field loss due to macular edema or ischemia, which we'll talk about in a bit. How you can identify it is when you do your dilated fundus exam. Uh, in the area of the branch retinal vein occlusion, you'll classically see flame hemorrhages or Don Blot hemorrhages, i.e. intraretinal hemorrhages. You can see con wool spots in the area as well, as well as hard exudates indicating there was some prior edema in that area, or you can just see the frank retinal edema and then a dilated tortuous vein, though it can be sometimes difficult to identify that vein acutely because it'll be hiding under the flame hemorrhages, but sometimes you can identify that at the point of the arteriovenous crossing and beyond. 
So, if, so Andrew, if I were to see these findings, what other studies could I do to help figure out if this is truly a retinal vein occlusion or something else going on? You can turn to the trusty tools of every retina specialist and get an OCT of the macula or also a fluorescein angiography. On an OCT, this can have intraretinal fluid or sometimes subretinal fluid. It would manifest as a cystic edema thought to be from production of everyone's favorite VEGF uh, molecules. On fluorescein angiography, you'll see delayed filling of that blocked vein also, which can even show capillary non-perfusion. There's a differentiation. It can be distinguished by um, whether that non-perfused area is actually non-ischemic or is ischemic, and that's based on how many disc diameters of, cap- of non-perfusion you can see. If there's you know, less than five disc diameters, it's considered non-ischemic. But if there's greater than five disc diameters of non-perfusion, that's considered an ischemic vein occlusion. These can both show neovascularization, leakage, and collateral vessels, which in and of themselves don't leak. So to summarize that, the utility of imaging studies in diagnosing a BRVO is twofold. One, to identify if there's edema to treat using OCT, and two, with fluorescein angiogram, to initially diagnose it, there is this distinction Andrew discussed between ischemic and non-ischemic, and that's defined by the BVOS study that, that, that originally tried to categorize the BRVOs, but we'll talk about soon whether or not that's actually useful in managing BRVO. Spoilers. Uh, it, it's not that use, it's not that useful, and it, it does have prognostic implications. So to move directly to that, we'll talk about treatment. There's a couple different treatments. So just to outline it, there's two different lasers one can consider: panretinal photocoagulation of the periphery. There's focal laser of the macula. You can consider steroids, and then you can consider anti-VEGF. So to start with PRP, uh, this is a big thing that the BVOS reviewed, and we're not going to talk in full detail about all the different studies with retinal vein occlusions in this episode. We'll probably do that in a later episode. But for at least for the lasers, it's more known that BVOS looked at when to do PRP, and they looked at when the PRP, if they should do PRP only when a BRVO is ischemic by Andrew's definition, which was uh, more than five disc diameters of non- non-perfusion or ischemia, you know, versus non-ischemic BRVOs. And what they found is PRPing an ischemic BRVO does reduce the chance of them getting neovascularization after the PRP. But long term, the patient doesn't do any better if you PRP them before or after the neovascularization. So the conclusion is just PRP after this neovascularization, because sometimes you'll unnecessarily PRP people if you PRP before the neovascularization actually starts. And, you know, that's that's not ideal. It doesn't, you know, PRPing before doesn't change the chance of vitreous hemorrhage occurring. So the only thing that that ischemia that Andrew mentioned in fluorescein angiogram does for you is it can guide you into how closely you should follow these patients up so that you can catch the NV early on. But other than that, um, it doesn't really change management of the patient. And then how about, uh, Andrew, how about I do focal laser and you can talk about steroids in a little bit? Sure. Okay. Okay. So then the other laser that the BVOS looked at is they, they examined the utility of focal laser. So that's not, you know, the PRP that we think about. Um, where you laser ischemic retina in the periphery, that's of the macula 
to try to reduce the incidence of macular edema. So essentially what the results of BVS found was that if the vision is worse than 2040 and there's no macular ischemia, i.e. the uh, vision loss is due to edema, then you should wait three months and then do focal laser, and that can help. In any case, nowadays, as we'll see um, in the pharmacologic part of management, that it's really seen as a second or third line therapy at this point because of the utility of anti-VEGF. But you should know that there, in theory, if for some reason you can't use anti-VEGF, then you can consider a focal laser. Okay, what else can you do, Andrew? You can use steroids like you can for almost anything, but be prepared for some consequences. Um, Here, there were two studies that looked at both BRVOs and CRVOs, and for the first one, SCORE used intravitreal triamcinolone, which was found to be about as effective as laser treatment, but those side effects, you'll definitely get increased rates of cataract and glaucoma, so people tend to avoid it if they can. We'll talk more in detail about the SCORE study, like Ben said, on a future episode. The Geneva study also looked at both types of branch and central retinal vein occlusions, but studied instead the dexamethasone implant, otherwise uh, branded as Osrdex, which many of you probably know is good and effective for three months, 90 days or so, but still does have the uh, potential to cause cataract and glaucoma. Anti-VEGF has is pretty much taken over most of the treatment as first line as most of you understand as as most of you have seen in practice probably as far as studies go the bravo study showed that intravitreal ranibizumab was better than focal laser so like ben was saying again focal has focal laser has sort of taken a backseat as second or third line therapy now and then there's the question of perhaps doing systemic anticoagulation because what we're talking the treatments we're talking about don't address the underlying cause of the retinal vein occlusion. So this has been studied and they found that systemic anticoagulation after a vein occlusion just makes like the bleeding worse and doesn't improve vision at all. So don't do it. And it kind of gets at the pathophysiology which we discussed earlier that the retinal vein occlusions are not necessarily thrombogenic. In fact, the vast majority of the time, they're not thrombogenic. They don't have to do with hypercoagulability. Um, um, so it's, it's anticoagulation, like giving your patient heparin or Coumadin will not help, and it could just make things worse. So it's a good. it was a good thought to investigate, but nowadays we know not to do that. Finally, we should talk about other complications besides decreased central vision and vein occlusions. Because sometimes you may see a patient after the vein occlusion has happened because they may have not had significantly decreased vision or may not have been aware of decreased peripheral or central vision. And those are mainly neovascular complications, including neovascularization um, in the posterior segment or NVI, NVA. So a patient could come in 90 days later with glaucoma, the famous 90 day, is, it's 90 day glaucoma, right? Is that what they say? Yeah. Text? Okay, cool. <laughs> the, <right>. famous, <laughs> the famous that I definitely remember 90 day glaucoma. <laughs> or they could present with vitreous hemorrhage. Um, you know, if you see someone with a unilateral vitreous hemorrhage, that should be on your differential. Obviously, there's other things on the differential, which maybe is a good topic for a later episode, unilateral vitreous hemorrhage, because I, I saw like three this past weekend. <laughs> it was like a lot. Oh <laughs> yeah, and every one of them actually I think had a different 
diagnosis in the end. So it was actually a good, um, good case series. But in any case, it's just something that to keep in mind, like keeping your differential when you see NV, because, you know, eventually the flame hemorrhages, all that stuff we talked about will go away. They won't be obviously visible. So it's, it's important to kind of keep it in mind. Maybe you'll find an OCT, some retinal thickening, but this is what it could look like after the initial acute episode. And that's branch retinal vein occlusions. Lucky for our listeners, we have a two-for-one special. We'll talk about central retinal vein occlusions. So a central retinal vein occlusion is, obviously there's a lot of similarities with a branch retinal vein occlusion. However, in this case, usually a thrombus actually develops when they do things like autopsy, histology. There's usually a thrombus in the central retinal vein. It's almost always at the lamina cribosa or like just before the lamina cribosa. So there's a thought that, because, you know, actually the the reason why some people get central retinal vein occlusions is not 100% clear. There's some thought that some perturbation of the lamina cribosa, perhaps a genetic, you know, anatomic difference may predispose people to a thrombus in the central retinal vein. It's also thought that perhaps it's a similar mechanism to branch retinal vein occlusions where the central retinal artery gets stiff and compresses a central retinal vein in that area. So essentially that's the initial arteriovenous crossing that could be happening in central retinal vein occlusions. Um, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing though that we discussed before with Virco's triad of stasis, vessel damage, and in some cases hypercoagulability can predispose someone to a central retinal vein occlusion, which we'll talk about later. And then finally... I want to discuss the other entity known as a hemi-retinal vein occlusion where, you know, it's only one trunk of the, the retinal, um, central retinal vein has an occlusion. Uh, the, the key here is to think about an HRVO more as a variant of a CRVO. It's not like a big BRVO. It's a variant of a CRVO. And the reason for that is the anatomy is essentially the same as a CRVO, except that these people just have um, a little bit of a anatomic difference in that their uh, central retinal vein branches before getting to the lamina. So it's still essentially identical to CRVO, except only half is done, but it's not the same like, you know, AV crossing and pathophysiology as a BRVO. And uh, this is a very kind of silly point, but I made this mistake as a junior resident, and I'll admit it now, so none of you, the rest of you do. HRVO is very different than HORV. The uh, oh, two yeah. are completely different. <laughs> we need um, more letters. <laughs> hemorrhagic occlusive retinal vasculitis is very different, not related to this at all, and that's all we'll say about that now for now. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't mix them up at the beginning. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's like, that's a regular thing. Okay, yeah. never mind. Um as far as diagnosis of central retinal vein occlusions, um, some aspects in which they can be different, people will come for vision loss as well, but sometimes even can present as neovascular glaucoma or as a vitreous hemorrhage over and on top of sometimes just that what they, the more milder relatively complaints that they might have with a BRVO. Um, for what you might see, Again, this is sort of divided by non-ischemic or ischemic uh, categories. The non-ischemic, those designated as such, they, those patients usually have vision better than 20 over 200. So 2200 is sort of your cutoff. And if they have an APD, a relative APD at all, it would be mild at most. The ischemic versions of the CRVOs, those are on the other side. They're worse than 2200 and an RAPD ought to be obvious. Uh, 
on exam, you'd see the same stuff, flame hemorrhages, dot blot hemes, cottonwool spots, heart exudates, retinal edema, dilated, torturous veins, except you'd see them everywhere, really, unless yeah. it's one of those hemiretinal vein occlusion variants, and then you just see it in half the retina. And just one um, other point is that you can have mild disc swelling in a central retinal vein occlusion, so which can be important because you might see someone and see some disc swelling, and that would that could push your differential in other directions if you're treating it as if it was you know um, an optic neuritis or a disc swelling. But know that in a central retinal vein occlusion, the, and you know they'll have an RAPD, so you'll think like, oh wow, this may be some kind of atypical optic neuritis. But no disc swelling, at least mild disc swelling, is allowed in central retinal vein occlusion. So you can keep that on your differential. Yeah, I'd say even like the uh, optic optic uh, i'd say even those optic neuritises the atypical ones they wouldn't have such a drastic retinal appearance otherwise yeah, with exactly. so many flame hemorrhages and such All right exactly the oct and fluorescein angiography studies are still your friend here the ischemic versus non-ischemic criteria is a little bit I think of it as bigger or wider of a gulf than it is for BRVO just because there's more retina to cover again. Instead of the cutoff being between five disc diameters, you know, as it was for BRVO, if it was less than five disc diameters of non-perfusion, then it was non-ischemic. If it was greater than five disc diameters, it was ischemic BRVO. In CRVO, it's 10 disc diameters, which is your cutoff. It's non-ischemic if there's less than 10 disc diameters of non-perfusion. It's ischemic if there are greater than 10 disc diameters of non-perfusion. Um, on OCT, you'd expect to see macular edema also. And Ben, I think one of the other tricky things here with especially testing for this are some risk factor differences that have been studied between BRVOs and CRVOs. You wouldn't really expect them to be that different just intuitively, but studies say otherwise, right? Right. So just first, the studies, the risk factors that are the same are um, age. So if someone's older than 60, they're allowed to have a CRVO. And if they have hypertension and hyperlipidemia, that's also because they'll have, you know, the, in theory, the stiffened art, um, arteriosclerotic vessels. The one distinction to remember between them is we said in BRVO, BMI is a risk factor. So maybe it's easier to remember BMB. And in CRVO, diabetes was found to be a risk factor. So I don't know if C and D is easy to remember, but if you remember BRVO and BMI is associated then remember that CRVO and diabetes is the other one, so they're associated. So that's a distinction that can't be tested because it's been borne out in the studies. But who knows? Statistic mumbo-jumbo, <laughs> if that's really yeah, truth or not. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, it doesn't really... And management doesn't make it like any, any difference. You know, you're going to still want to treat diabetes and obesity in any case, but here we yeah. are. Um, um, yeah, you want to you wanna hit it. Yeah, the other things that can also give you a higher risk for CRVOs include um, oral contraceptives, and we know about those having effects on thrombogenic potential right, for thrombogenic. oral. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the word I'm yeah. looking yeah. for. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So we know about the thrombogenic potential for oral contraceptives, so that makes sense. There's also a possibility that glaucoma, or at least higher intraocular pressure, can engender a higher risk for CRVO. Like Ben was saying earlier, this has to do with um, 
this issue at the lamina cribosa or right where the central retinal artery tries to go through it, you can imagine that if there's higher pressure potentially um, cutting off flow at that junction a little easier or a little more more um, a higher risk, you can imagine that higher pressure would engender a higher risk for that junction being cut off so that your risk for having a, something like a CRVO would be higher with higher pressures. Right. Um, okay. So in terms of workup, it's pretty similar. If they're under 60, then you can consider um, a workup, including a hypercoagulability workup. Or if they have a bilateral CRVO, that does indicate that there's something systemic going on. The, the key things to investigate for are hyperviscosity syndromes, such as polycythemia vera, Thing, anything that can cause hypercoagulability and inflammatory causes because remember Virco's triad could be set off by vessel damage that's um, part of the triad so otherwise you don't have to work up these patients just like in a brvo you know if you're over 60 and have some vasculopathic risk factors you're allowed to have a crvo unfortunately management yeah. how do we deal with them thankfully management, at least according to the study results, those are all pretty much the same between BRVOs and CRVOs. The uh, central vein occlusion study, CVOS, that version compared to the BVOS for PRP, found the same recommendations for PRP. You wait until there's neovascularization before you zap it with the laser. The others that were the same, the score in Geneva studies that investigated uh, steroid treatment, the triamcinolone and the uh, dexamethasone implant, they found about the same results for BRVO and CRVO, just use them with caution with the same side effects of steroids. And then in this case, the anti-VEGF version of a study for CRVOs was CRUISE. I always feel like this is like, you can remember the anti-VEGF retinal vein occlusion studies because they sound kind of like modernly militant, like a cruise missile for CRVOs and like Bravo is that for BRVOs. Um, and that, it works. The one thing that is different is that focal laser, like Ben was saying, that was found to be have some benefit in branch retinal vein occlusions. The CVOS found that it wasn't useful. Focal laser was not useful for central retinal vein occlusions. So that's the only real difference between what the studies found between branch retinal vein occlusions and central retinal vein occlusions as far as management differences. Right. And just the only other differences in general, outcomes are worse in CV um, in CRVOs, as you'd expect, because it's a larger, right. um, you know, everything is just a little bit worse. But otherwise, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the treatment is effectively identical, except focal laser is not really an option in CRVO. Okay. What about complications? Uh, 90 day glaucoma again. That's all I really think of, I'll be honest. But, uh, <laughs> thank you, glaucoma but yes, friend. <laughs> NVI, NVA. Um, and yeah. then yeah, the, this does have a. Oh, vitreous hemorrhage, yeah. I see such a colorful um, note here in your script, Ben. I've 
I've never seen this sentence before, and I hope I never see it again. <laughs> yeah, so, so, okay, so there's this entity that we should throw in here because it's not going to be enough to make its own episode, but there's, you can form optociliary shunt vessels in CRVO. So what those are is vessels that are um, appear at the disc, at the optic disc, that they kind of appear in the same place you'd expect neovascularization of the disc. It's important to differentiate it from neovascularization of this because these are just these are just solid vessels. So two ways to differentiate them. One is NVD uh, tends to be much lacier and finer, whereas optociliary shunt vessels are kind of thicker. And two, they're like engorged. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, agreed. Yeah, they're they're more engorged. And two, the like really more definitive way is on fluorescein angiogram, neovascularization vessels will leak compared to optociliary shunt vessels. And the reason is optociliary shunt vessels are just engorged vessels from the chronic venous stasis. So the central retinal vein can't drain, but you have other vessels, veins in the eye that can drain, including the posterior ciliary uh, vessels um, that, that go with your short posterior ciliary arteries. So those can become engorged and eventually kind of come forward and be visible on the disc. And as you know, those vessels are normal. They have pericytes and everything to keep um, to, to maintain the blood retina barrier compared to new vascular vessels, which don't have that, uh, those pericytes. So that's why they will leak on, on fluorescent angiography. Now, central retinal vein occlusions are not the only thing that can cause um, optociliary shunt vessels. To help you remember this, and this is that comment that Andrew is, was just noting, I kind of think like of optociliary shunt vessels as sort of like hemorrhoids of the eye. Uh, I was waiting if <laughs> you'd like, say it. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Like, you know, it's like, um, you know, like hemorrhoids are caused by something in general compressing like a, a tight anal sphincter oh. or whatever oh, that causes <laughs> your, your rectal veins to become engorged and distend and can become painful. Um, or, you know, like a thrombus can set them off to be worse. So... Um, there are really only four causes of optociliary shunt vessels. And I bring this up because you could see these in isolation or as perhaps an incidental finding. And it's important to know these, um, this differential so you can exclude the appropriate things. So basically for an optociliary shunt vessel to form, there either has to be compression. So there has to be compression into the, the, the central retinal vein. So that can be behind the eye. And that means a optic nerve tumor classically meningioma, though glioma could do that too, or chronic papilledema, which is also compression of the, um, you know, the optic nerve and central retinal vein. Or there can be obstruction of blood flow through inside the eye. That's how I think of it. So the most common would be a chronic CRVO. So after CRVO has been there for long enough, you can get these optociliary shunt vessels. And they say that chronic glaucoma can do that too, like chronic severe glaucoma. So if you've ruled out all the other things and you can blame it on their chronic glaucoma, there's not really another way to prove it's that, which we all love to blame it on glaucoma. So to summarize that, good at that. There, there, there's four causes. There's pressure behind the eye, papilledema, or an optic nerve tumor, or inside the eye, central retinal vein occlusion, and I, you know, probably glaucoma. Okay. That's retinal vein occlusions. So do you want me to shoot a quick summary? Uh, sure. Did you ask if you want to do it or I want to do it? Uh, I mean, like, I can do it. If you want to, you can. Sure, go I, ahead. I don't care, okay. I don't have it in my head right now. Oh, sure. Um, go for it. Okay, so so to summarize, uh, we talked about retinal vein occlusions, both branch and central. 
Branches or branch metal vein occlusions are caused by stiff arteries at arteriovenous crossings compressing veins, whereas CRVOs are caused by thrombi developed in the central retinal vein, which could be due to a couple different reasons. They both have intraretinal hemorrhages and edema around the area of occlusion. That's their principal sign, and their symptoms can include the peripheral or central vision loss from macular ischemia or edema. The treatment of these include PRP when they get neovascularization, which is a known complication, or it's anti-VEGF to help reduce macular edema causing central vision loss. You can also do focal laser in branch retinal vein occlusions, but not in central retinal vein occlusions. And don't treat them systemically. Don't give them heparin, because you'll just make <laughs> things worse. And that's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can always... Uh rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts most notably probably apple podcasts we also have a uh, twitter eyes for ears with a number four and the website eyes for ears.com with a number four also and um i haven't had a chance to take funny pictures of ben lately so the instagram exists although it's not yet that interesting sorry it's the one good thing about him leaving residency <laughs> program i have my spies i'll get it somehow redford will help Okay, I I hope everyone has a good week. Take care. Bye. (laughs) Bye.